Makes me feel young. Yeah. Kind of like it. What do you think? Yeah. All right. Only mistake we made is uh, I think we put the comfortable seats in the back instead of the front, and uh, everybody camped out back there. I'm not so sure that was the uh, right thing to do. Hey, um, I'm pretty sure everybody's aware of uh, the Supreme Court's decision this past uh, week, and uh, a couple of people have already asked, you know, if we um, as a church have uh, kind of a policy, if we have uh, a statement and so forth, and I'm happy to tell you that our group of churches, uh, what's called Converge now, used to be called the Baptist General Conference, actually has a position paper uh, on the subject of gender and homosexuality and uh, our response and so on. And so I think uh, if it's not there, you can, uh, we'll put it there, but you can go to our website, the church's website, and uh, there's, uh, I think, a link to the conference site, and there at the conference site you can search around and, and uh, you can come up. There's a number of resolutions that our group of churches have taken together, uh, positions on various issues, social issues and so on, uh, that's pretty helpful. And especially if you anticipate having a conversation with somebody about this subject, uh, I think these resolutions might help clarify and give you some language around which uh, perhaps you know, your feelings and your beliefs could uh, come together. And so I encourage you to do that. If you don't have access to your computer because it goes down like mine does or whatever, uh, you can call the church office. We'll make a hard copy for you and uh, be happy to do that. Uh, I've been a pastor for a while now, quite a few years, and uh, over the course of the years in that particular role, um, I've had some experiences which I would call memorable um, especially at weddings and funerals, there are things that happen that are kind of memorable, right? You just remember uh, some of these things that happen unusual. But um, this actually happened to me when I went to visit uh, a dying man from our congregation at his house, uh, at his home. Uh, he grew up, I think, in a pretty uh, tough situation, was kind of a blue-collar type of guy, had worked hard all of his life, owned his own company and so forth, but he had a Behind all of that tough exterior, there was a very, very uh, sensitive heart. And uh, this guy came to the place in his life where he understood the gospel and he trusted Jesus as his Savior, uh, but he was the kind of guy who, um, deep down inside of his heart, just knew that he did not deserve uh, the grace that God gave him. He did not deserve the love that God had for him. He did not deserve the forgiveness that came to him by uh, trusting Christ and his death on the cross and, and so on and so forth. And, and all through my uh, relationship with him, he would ask on numerous occasions, are you sure? Are, are you sure that, you know, uh, I'm forgiven and, and, and so on? And so for him, I think it was just too good to be true, just too good to be true because of his past and so on. And so this day I went to visit him. After a little bit of chit-chat, uh, the guy leaned forward in his chair and I was sitting next to him, and he grabbed me by the shirt, right? He just grabbed me. I, I was surprised. I didn't know what was happening. And uh, he just grabbed me by the shirt, and he pulled me until I was, like, within inches of his face, right? And he looked me square in the eyes, and uh, he said to me, Pastor, I'll never forget it. He said, you better be telling me the truth about Jesus. <laughs> Dead serious. He was a dying man. He knew that he didn't have long to live. He was thinking about what's going to happen to him on the other side of this life. He was thinking about meeting God. He was aware of his past. 
And he said, I'll never forget, right? You better be telling me the truth about Jesus. He says, you're sure that his death on the cross covered my stuff, right? And uh, I thought, wow, this guy, he's had a lot of time to think. He's been sick for a while. And he realizes he's coming down to the end. And uh, he was thinking about meeting God. And I was able to say to him with 100% conviction, I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive that Jesus is the only mediator between us and God and that his death was for all the world, for everybody, even Harry, including you. And, uh, and, and then a few days later, um, he died. He's the only one who can make things right. And so uh, in Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, you know, and in um, 1 Timothy uh, chapter, I don't know if you have your Bibles with you. We have some Bibles out uh, on the way in if, if you're sitting in the front. Uh, but it'd be great if you bring your own Bible and uh, then you can just pick up a pen and you can mark it and so forth. Uh, but in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, uh, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way you can be right with God. There's only one mediator. There's only one high priest who gave himself as a ransom for all. For all. There's a whole lot of people walking around on the planet that have no clue that Jesus already paid the price for them. And that's our job, right? Between now and the day we die is to share with as many people as we can, hey, there is a high priest. There is a mediator between us and God who can make things right between us and God. And he died for you. He died for all, uh, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so uh, Jesus is the only priest who can secure or can guarantee our eternity in heaven. He's the only begotten son of God. And so we're at a place in our study in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Um, it's, I think, on page 1004 in uh, the Bibles uh, that you, if you picked up the Bibles that are from here. And uh, he's the only high priest. He's a priest that's different than any other priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we picked this up last time we were in Hebrews chapter 7. A priest... Uh, after the order of uh, Melchizedek, different than any other kind of priest. And uh, this morning, as we go further, God goes on to say that he's not only uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he's a priest that replaces every other human priest, every other human priesthood. He's better than any other human priesthood. And so God goes further in the Bible today and says that the priesthood of Jesus replaces uh, the priesthood of any human being, and specifically that of Aaron in the Old Testament and all of the Levites and so forth. Uh, The first high priest of God was Aaron, and then the Levites followed and so forth. And so I would say if you're depending on any other priest, right, if you've got your hope on any other institution or any uh, other priest or high priest or any other person that's going to help you to get right with God, Uh, You need to pay attention to what the Bible has to say here. Um, Way back in the Old Testament, God said this change was coming, that somebody uh, was going to come in the order of uh, Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek way back in the book of Genesis, you might remember. And uh, it's such a significant event, Jesus coming into the world, that as you know, all of us mark 
our time from the time Jesus was here, right? What is today? It's 2015 A.D. It's 2015 years after uh, Christ came, or what's called now the Common Era. So long before Jesus came, Abraham, the father of every true believer, uh, Abraham met this mysterious person, Melchizedek. And uh, we noted a few things about him that I think are worth reviewing because he points to Jesus, and I think he was kind of a plant by God to prefigure the person of Jesus so that people like you and me and Harry would never miss who Jesus really is. And uh, we would have the opportunity to uh, put our faith in Christ with every confidence uh, possible, right? He's a priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek, and we can be absolutely sure uh, he is from God. And so we've already noted a few traits about this Melchizedek that makes him different and that are uh, characteristics of Jesus. And first of all, we notice that Melchizedek is both a priest and a king, now, all through the Old Testament, a priest and a king were always separated. It was a separation of church and state. And uh, I had mentioned that every once in a while, a king would overstep his bounds and try to uh, do the work of a priest, and always bad things happen. And we could trace that through the Old Testament to show that. But this Melchizedek was a priest and a king together. And Jesus, of course, is a, not only a priest, but he is the king. He's the king of kings. He's going to politically come back and rule the world. He's a priest and he's a king in his uh, kingdom. And so Melchizedek was uh, the king of peace and the king of righteousness at the same time. And uh, we could, you know, uh, go back and, uh, well, if if you just uh, look in chapter 7, verse 1 of Hebrews, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from slaughter, and uh, to him, Abraham, a portion of the tenth of Aaron. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Jerusalem, right? King of peace, shalom. So this is really, I think, so significant. You can't have peace without righteousness. Everybody wants peace. Nobody wants righteousness. You can't have peace with God without righteousness, without being right. And you can't be right without Jesus imparting his righteousness to us, right, through the cross. You can't have peace in a marriage without righteousness. Somebody's got to change so that we can have peace. We've got to do the right thing. You can't have peace with other people without righteousness. You can't have peace in the world without righteousness. And you can't have righteousness apart from Christ. There simply is no source of righteousness uh, apart from Christ. And so uh, righteousness and peace and our, our king, Jesus is the, uh, you know, the priest spiritually. He makes us righteous and he's our king politically. Uh, he's destined to rule the world. Um, I can't wait to go on vacation. I bought a book and uh, the book is entitled uh, When a Jew Rules the World by Joel Rosenberg. And I'm so excited, I can't wait to get some time to just sit down and read that. Uh, I don't know if you know who Joel Rosenberg is, but he's a completed Jew. And um, it's just, a, he's written a number of things that I've read. And uh, when a Jew rules the world, such a provocative title. <laughs> but it's coming, right? Uh, the sec- so the first thing, uh, Melchizedek is like Jesus in that he's a priest and a king. All right. Second thing about Melchizedek that we notice is that um, Abraham, the believer, worships Melchizedek. The priest, by giving him a tithe, a tenth of everything he has. 
Uh, so Abraham the believer worships Melchizedek, the priest, because he recognized him. Uh, look, verse 1 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, was a priest of the most high God. He's no ordinary priest. Jesus is no ordinary priest. Jesus is not an option among other options. He's the priest of the most high God. And Abraham recognizes this priest of the most high God, and he worships him. He gives him a tenth of everything that he has because he recognized him as the priest of the most high God. And so I wonder, you know, do we recognize Jesus as the priest, the priest of the most high God? And do we worship him? I think the most basic act of worship is tithing. It's what we call tithing. It's just taking, it's not from the law. It's not from the, uh, you know, from Moses and from the Ten Commandments and all that. It starts here with Abraham recognizing who this Melchizedek really is. This is God. This is uh, our king and our priest. And he worships him by uh, tithing. Uh, the first 10% of his income. It's, I think it's the most basic act of worship uh, initiated by Abraham. And then third, we saw that um, Melchizedek, like Jesus, has no record of a beginning or an ending. There's no uh, record in the Bible of his birthday or his death day. He just like always is. If you look at um, uh, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 7, this Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. And again, Melchizedek points to Jesus in the sense that Jesus doesn't have a beginning or an end either. It's not to say that Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. It's to say that he existed long before that. He emptied himself, humbled himself, became a man, you know. And it's not to say that Jesus didn't die. It's to say that death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't overtake him, overpower him, because he lives long after his death day, uh, because of the resurrection and because of Easter Sunday, like we sang about uh, this morning. And so uh, it's kind of exciting when you think that God planted this Melchizedek and that when Jesus comes, God is helping the Jewish people to go all the way back to Melchizedek and say, wow, you know, you can have absolute confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, uh, a priest uh, after the order of uh, Melchizedek. And I love the 16th verse here. It says, you know, um, of Hebrews uh, chapter 7, it says, you know, on the one hand, the former, oh no, I'm sorry, it's the 15th verse. Oh, 16. Jesus has become a priest, right, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like genealogies were very important in the whole Levitical priesthood thing. Jesus uh, has become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. How can you have confidence that Jesus is the only way to God? He's the only one who came back from the dead. He's got the power of an indestructible life. Uh, he was dead, but he's alive. And so it's kind of exciting to uh, recognize that God has built into his word some absolute proofs about uh, having confidence in the person of Jesus and who he is. And I think it ought to give us confidence as witnesses to the world around us. You know, uh, when you think about what happened this week to our nation and, and the direction in which things are going, I hope you realize that, you know, there only is one answer for all the issues and problems that we face, and it's Christ. And you and I are the only people, the Christian people, who know that answer. 
and who have within us the power by the Spirit of God and the truth by the Word of God to be able to communicate to the people around us the, the, the issue that, that, that where everybody's missing and that our country is moving further and further away from by the minute, right? And uh, I think, you know, um, we ought to be inspired uh, by Melchizedek and recognizing, you know, Jesus really is the answer to whatever uh, problems that uh, come uh, to the forefront. And so why is it, okay, why is it that every other priesthood has to be replaced with the priesthood of Jesus? Well, notice verse 11. Uh, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? If the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments could have worked, if it would have been possible to get right with God by our own efforts, by keeping the law, then we have no need for another priesthood, right? But notice our author goes on. He says, um, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. When Jesus came, he wasn't in the line of priests. He didn't fit the Old Testament mold. He broke out of that whole Old Testament thing. And uh, the law changed because this new priesthood came from the tribe of Judah and was dependent upon an indestructible life, not a genealogy that traced itself all the way back to Aaron, who was appointed the first uh, high priest. And it's interesting to say that, you know, um, the law and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, never made anybody perfect. It never satisfied God perfectly, and it never satisfied the worshiper's heart perfectly. Why in the Old Testament do we have uh, all the Jewish people constantly moving away from loving God? Why are they having such a hard time just living by the law and appreciating uh, what God had given them and recognizing how superior it was and so forth? Well, the whole system of the law, the Ten Commandments, nobody could live up to them. And uh, all of this, besides that, all of this was added after Melchizedek was revealed. Uh, none of that was permanent. The sacrificial system and uh, how it was added afterwards, after Moses, with all the animal sacrifices and so forth, uh, the Bible says that that whole system was like a tutor. It was like a coach the, uh, to drive us to recognize our need for a Savior. In Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, you know, well, what was the, what was the purpose of the law? Uh, what was the purpose of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament in uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19? Uh, why then the law? Well, look, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham that through you and through your offspring... All the nations of the world are going to be blessed. That offspring is Jesus. In another place, he makes the point, it doesn't say offsprings, per, you know, plural, meaning the Israelites, but he, it says offspring, like one offspring is going to, and that's the person of Christ and, and so on. And so, so, so why was the law? The law was added because of the sins and transgressions until Jesus could come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, the law. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. For it is in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God, fellow heirs uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Since human priests receive their authority from the law, and since the law has been set aside, that priesthood has been abandoned. And uh, since the priesthood changed with the coming of Christ, the law changed. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 7 and verse 12 uh, of Hebrews, again, um, he begins to explain all of this. It's so important for uh, when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There's a new law. It's not the Ten Commandments anymore. It's the law of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God living in us and animating us and uh, creating this uh, desire of life within us. Uh, The law changed when Jesus came. So basically, you know, the Old Testament law was fulfilled in Christ. And the righteousness of Christ was imparted to us. And God gave us that righteousness so that we might have uh, peace with God. Uh, And again, uh, Romans 7 talks about this. Uh, Our lives are validated not by our own efforts anymore, but by Christ. Uh, Our obedience comes from a desire now to please God, to love God back for his first loving us. It no longer comes from fear. It no longer comes from an attempt to gain his favor, uh, but from love. We've been set free from the law and given a new desire or a new spirit, the very spirit of God. Relating to God through Jesus is way better than trying to relate to God through a law that we can't keep, which only creates frustration and failure. Only Jesus can perfect our relationship. And so verse 15, all of this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, talking about Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever. 
Um, every other human priesthood was based on external factors, on genealogies, on, you know, there's actually a list of 142 uh, blemishes that would disqualify a person from becoming a high priest. 142 blemishes. If you had this wrong with you, that wrong with you, it's kind of hysterical when you read it, you know, uh, and, and you see the qualifications. They're all external. Uh, but the qualification for Jesus is just one, right? And it's the indestructible life. It's the resurrection. It's the confidence that we can have that there's life on the other side of this life, uh, that death could not hold him. It's an internal qualification, his indestructible life. Um, he resurrected unlike any other human uh, priest. And so implicit in God's word uh, to Jesus in uh, verse 17 is the resurrection, which declares Jesus uh, to be the son of the living God. In uh, Romans chapter 1, you know, we have this great statement right at the very beginning of the uh, book of Romans. Uh, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, different than any other human priest. The problem with every other priesthood is that they all die, right? And they all then need to be replaced. I think it's such a great comfort for us to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be forever. You can relax in him. You can be comfortable in Christ. You can know that you have uh, every confidence uh, in the person of Christ for our eternal future. And so verse 18, on the one hand, uh, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Talking about the law. It's weakness and it's uselessness. In terms of making people right with God, and I think this is so significant because if you ask the average person on the street, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? And they say yes, and you say why, they almost always will say, because I'm a good person. Almost always. Good on the basis of what? Good compared to who? You know, uh, I had an argument with a guy this past week who thought he's a pretty good guy, and I tried to help him understand that he wasn't. And, uh, you know, uh, to try and be righteous with, and find peace with God on the basis of keeping the law, uh, the author of Hebrews says, you know, it's, it's, it's weak and it's useless. The law, look what he says, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. On the one hand, every effort to make it with God is worthless and weak. On the other hand, a new hope has been introduced with the coming of Christ. A new hope, right? Uh, through which we are able to actually draw close uh, to God. When it comes to making things perfect between us and God, uh, the law and all of our efforts are weak and useless, but Jesus gives us hope. Because why? Because he's perfect. Because he satisfies God and because he's able to satisfy our hearts. And even uh, all of this is made even more significant and uh, more secure because God makes an oath about it. This is uh, interesting too, verse 20. It was not without, an, and it was all not without an oath. God made an oath about this, about Christ. And um, for those who formerly became priests were made priests without an oath. No priest ever got an oath from God but Jesus is different but this one was made but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind 
You are a priest forever. How can you be confident that Jesus will be there for you on the other side of your death? Because God swore an oath in Psalm 110 to Jesus that you will be a priest forever. Unlike any other priest whose priesthood ended when they died. You know, there are only two places in the Bible where God's made an oath. The first one was way back in Genesis. You remember when God swore to Abraham that he was going to bless everybody through Abraham's offspring. And uh, we have that uh, right here in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. We studied this back in Genesis 15. But um, look what it says, just to refresh your memory, verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. Uh, We uh, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. An anchor for our souls. And again, um, God's word and God's oath. And I think God was so concerned, you know, uh, everything, um, everything in our relationship with God is dependent on faith. Right? Faith is always dependent on something. You have to, if you're going to have faith, you have to put it in something, right? Faith from God is always put in his word. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is in the word of God. If we're going to live by faith, it has to be faith in something. And what is it? It's faith in God's word. And God, I think, was so concerned that so many people lie so much about everything that he made an oath To say, I'm serious about this. Listen to me. Only made an oath two times in the entire Bible. And the first was to Abraham that he would bring this blessing to everyone, all the nations of the earth. And the second is this oath that Jesus would be the priest forever. That we could have confidence that on the other side of this life, what Jesus is to us now, he will be there as well. Um, What confidence That's why I was able to say to Harry, yeah, I am 100% sure. Only Jesus makes things right between us and our creator. You can't have peace with God without righteousness, and only Jesus can bring that righteousness. It's so important to take God at his word, and God made an oath to convince us, to guarantee his word. Um, And that's, I think, extremely important. And look how strongly God says this, you know. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's not going to change. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can put 100% of your confidence in the person of Christ. The Lord has sworn and and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So look, what does that mean for us? Verse 22. That makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That makes Jesus our guarantor, our insurance, our confidence, 
our, uh, our, our ability to be able to read. Jesus is our guarantor. He ensures that the terms of God's covenant or God's promise will be fulfilled. Um, and it's a better covenant, right? Jesus makes us, uh, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant or testament, your, uh, some of the Bibles might say, a better testament. Uh, it's the idea of a last will and testament. It's, you, that word is used 21 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's the idea of like the last will and testament. Once you make a last will and testament, nobody can change it. Right? You die. You don't have to worry that, you know, somebody on the other side of your death is going to grab a hold of that thing and change it and, uh, in favor of themselves or something like that. And, and that's the idea that I think the author of Hebrews is trying to convey for us here is that this is a better testament. This is the last will and testament. And Jesus is our guarantor that this is going to happen. Um, what a great thing that is, and, and why? Verse 23, uh, the former priests were many in number because they were uh, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's alive today. Our priest is unchanging. Our priest is indestructible. Our priest is unalterable. We have a guarantee that on the other side of this life, we're going to wake up in heaven. And uh, the result for us in verse 25, I think, is remarkable. Um, He's able to save to the uttermost. Um, Some of your Bibles might say save from the uttermost. I think it's uh, better translated the way we have it in the ESV, uh, to the uttermost, but He's also able to save from the other. I don't care what your background is, what your past is, how unrighteous you've been, whatever background you've come from and all the rest of it, he is able. And he lives today and he's in heaven um, uh, interceding for us. I think it gives us confidence. It gives us the ability to relax. It gives us the ability to uh, lower our anxiety levels. Because we have this confidence about this great priest who's able to make peace between us and God. And he lives to make intercession. The word intercession simply means uh, to approach or to appeal. It's like a lawyer going before a judge. It's to make petitions for us. He represents us at the throne of God. When we draw near to the throne, uh, you remember in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, just a page back in verse 14... Uh, Since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. For us, it's a throne of grace, because Jesus is there interceding, being our go-between, being the priest, understanding us, knowing his Father, making things right between us and God. He lives to pray for us. That's what he's doing today for the last 2,000 years. So we bring our prayers. We're not sure of when we... Aren't you unsure of what God's will is oftentimes when you pray? We bring our prayers, and the Lord takes them, and he brings them before the Father. And uh, he intercedes for us. He he explains, you know, I think, you know, this is... uh, DeVries, and, you know, here he is again, and he's an idiot, and he, you know, he just doesn't understand, and he doesn't know, but he wants you to do the best thing, and da 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 and here's Christ interceding, go-between, and will be, 
And uh, he, he's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus is in heaven and his prayer is for us. Uh, our salvation is Jesus doing from beginning to end. He, he starts it and he's doing it now and he will complete it uh, when we uh, die and we stand uh, together with him. Our part is to believe. God's part is to transfer us into this great kingdom. Um, Paul puts it like this in um, Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Our part is to believe. God's part is to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our job is to believe. Our job is to put faith in the word of God. And I'm kind of excited about this summer because uh, Dan and I are going to, uh, uh, we put together this uh, series of messages for the summer about faith mentors. Everybody's talking about mentors. Everybody needs a mentor. Everybody can be a mentor. We all need mentors. We all want mentors. Da, da, da. How do you get mentored in your faith so that your faith matures? And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of mentors uh, who teach us of, of how to grow in our faith. And so over the summer, we've picked, you know, a number of those to kind of uh, bring them alive and say, hey, anybody can have a mentor for their faith. God has given them to us uh, in his word. Our job is to believe. Our job is to put our faith in the word of God. And God's job is then to take us and transfer us out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of God. And uh, when you become a Christian, and I'm I'll close with this. When you become a Christian, I would say to you uh, that the Bible says you become a whole new person, a whole new person. And uh, I would say that that means that when you become a Christian, God changes your past. A lot of people think, well, you know, the past is the past. I can't do anything about the past. The past. No, you can't. Guess what? God changes your past. Your past, when you become a Christian, is no longer, you know, what you did or who you were. It's like your past is the cross of Christ through which you were washed and cleansed and made new. And God changes our past. It's a wonderful uh, gift that he uh, gives to us. Um, what a great thing it is when um, our past is different from what we remember it, our new past. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, there is therefore now, right now, Right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're somebody who's always dwelling on your past, you, know, you ought to get off that. Seriously. And get on to the fact that that was all covered. And it was forgiven. And you have this new life. And you can get focused on the future. God doesn't just change your past. He changes your future. That's what we've been talking about today. This priest after the order of Melchizedek secures an entirely new future. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might have what? Everlasting life. Changes your future. A lot of people think the only thing in their future is death. God comes into the picture and says, no, I'm going to change your future. I'm going to give you everlasting life. And I think we Christians are the only people who can afford to die optimistically. The only people who can actually look forward to the promises of God that's going to be way better than anything in this life. Right? And then I want to say last that God doesn't just change our past and our future, but he changes our present. We are becoming, the Bible says, a new creation in the present. 
In other words, we don't have to be uh, stuck where we are. Wherever we are, we can grow. Wherever we are, we can be transformed. Wherever we are, God wants to do something new in us, right? If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have the great high priest who will always be, and he's trustworthy. He's our great high priest. What a great thing it is to have confidence in Jesus, not to go through this world saying, well, I hope I got the right one. I was in India, you know, uh, Hinduism believes that uh, there are a bazillion different gods. And one of the terrible things about being a Hindu is that you're never sure you're worshiping the right God. And if you're a missionary in India, one of the great challenges is to convince people that you have the right God. And I think one of the privileges of being a Christian is to have that confidence. Wow, I know the God. Uh, I know the, the mediator, the priest who can make things right with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful, Father, for the confidence we can have in him. We're thankful, Father, for the way in which you build into your word uh, these proofs so that we, Father, can look back now, you know, thousands and thousands of years and see that you planted this guy Melchizedek as a, a type, as a prefigurement of Christ so that when Christ came, we could have confidence that, yeah, this was your plan all along. Nobody else has a past like that. Nobody else has a background like that. And so, Father, thanks for the confidence, but turn that confidence into action. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be concerned about the people around us, people who are being led astray, being led further and further from you, people confused, Father, about who you are and about what your will is. And I pray that we, Father, could be like Jesus, that we could speak the truth and that we could do it in love. And that people would be drawn to you when they experience your love through us. And that they would in turn embrace the truth. And Father, having embraced the truth would then desire to serve you. And to use their lives to bring glory to your name. In Jesus we pray.